I'm going to pray and then I'm going to preach. Father, I just ask that you would, by your spirit, make yourself known to our hearts. That we would leave here with a very big view of you. That where so often we find ourselves in trouble because we've got such a small view of you, such a big view of others or ourselves, that that would be reversed tonight, I pray. That we would get a sense of the awe of who you are, the wonder of who you are. And that we would, you would be restored into your proper place in our heart, the place of supremacy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Now, you probably noticed this, but people tend to categorise people in lots of different ways. So, sometimes race can be a big one. Obviously, historically, lots of things have gone on. Um, sometimes age. big deal is made about whether someone's kind of at the older end of things or the younger end of things. Gender. Um, even taste. You know, man, you like that kind of music? You know, you, know, you, you find people categorised by style, um, tribe, uh, political views. You voted for who? You know, that kind of thing. And we, we create walls and categories between one another on all kinds. I mean, you name it, it gets down to the real fine detail, sometimes ridiculously so. But we're experts at doing it, experts at building walls and making divisions and creating categories. Whereas the scripture really only has two categories, a believer and unbeliever. Those are the categories of scripture. Those who, by God's grace have come to put their trust in him through throwing themselves at the mercy of Jesus. And those who won't do that. The Bible uses strong language to describe those two categories, darkness, light, categories like that. Judgment, eternal life. Death, life. I mean, it's very stark and... There will be people in this room tonight that are in both categories. There will, be, there will be those of you here that are believers. There will be those of you here that aren't. And you're here either because you're interested, or maybe someone brought you along, or dragged you along. Or, you know, you're just, maybe you're staying with someone and it's the polite thing to do to go to church with them, you know. Who knows why you're here. But um, I want to be speaking to both categories tonight as we go through. Really trying to show you Jesus. We all need to see Jesus. He's the one we need to see. And hopefully that will become clear why as we go through the message um, tonight. We're going to look at Psalm 130. It's a, it's a beautiful psalm, very penetrating. Only got eight verses, but there's a lot in there. I'm going to read that to you. Please either follow in the Bible that you, you've got with you, or if you don't have a Bible with you, just listen. I'm going to read it. And um, it's a beautiful thing. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his 
iniquities. That's the word of God. We're going to do two things with this psalm today. The first thing is I'm going to use this psalm to critique what is the main religion in London today. Okay? So I'm going to use this psalm to do that. Uh, that main religion is not Christianity or Islam. It is, um, the best way I can describe it is um, spirituality. Or Eastern mysticism tailored for Western secular society. It's really a mixture of kind of Buddhism and kind of Hindu uh, philosophy mixed with a kind of a Western uh, self-centered uh, secular uh, grasp of life. It manifests in real enthusiasm for things like yoga, acupuncture, other mind, body, spirit exercises and treatments, and particularly in phrases like well-being, positive energy, and karma. Uh, it can happily all fit under the umbrella New Age, and um, I'm going to be critiquing that tonight through this psalm. Fun? You bet. <laughs> Over the years, I've made certain side comments about such things, but probably never really given you a chance to get uh, into really what's behind those comments, so we're going to just blast it today, and um, God will hopefully give us the grace to do that with, with grace, and yet with blastingness also. Uh, it's good to blast some things every now and then. Um, the second thing I want you to do through this psalm is we're going to help you understand the rhythm of the truly Christian life. Help you really understand what, what the Christian life feels like. Um, what Christian growth feels like. Um, any of you that have been a Christian for a while, you know that Christian growth isn't like just kind of from one stride of kind of victory and triumph to the next. It doesn't, doesn't feel like that always, does it? it? It doesn't feel like that. It feels more like this. It feels more like finding yourself by the grace of God in a relationship with him. Okay? You've come to know Jesus and you've invited him as you've received him as Lord. And he's come and indwelt you by his spirit. And now you know God, right? Now it makes sense, yeah? You think, oh, now when I pray, I, I know who I'm praying to. It's, I'm not in the fog anymore. Hallelujah. I've been saved and all that. Okay? And you say, God, I want to know you more. And God, I want to grow, Lord. I want to grow. I want to be, you know, I want to be kind of wise and mature in you and all of that. And God says, fine. And then, and then suddenly it's like everything gets stripped away. And like you feel like, what on earth has happened? Your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling all over the place. You're in the Bible and it's like, man, alive. And you're, you're just like, what's, you're utterly disorientated. And you're like, God, I don't know what happened, but you've got to do something. And you wait. And then by his grace, he brings you out of that season into a broad and spacious place. And you go, yeah, hallelujah, I've grown. I'm now a man of God or whatever, right? You say, God, you did it, you're amazing. I don't know what, what that was about, but wow, you've answered it now. Oh, Lord, I want to know you better. And then suddenly you find yourself, it's like you're on like a 10-inch diameter of, of, of grass on a pillar of a huge thousand-meter tall cliff and all around you is just nothingness. And you're like, whoa. I don't know what to do. I don't know where I'm going. Lord, I don't know my left from my right. Lord, show me the way. And you just stand there. And you wait and you trust him. And then bang, he brings you through and you're running again like a mighty one. That's what growth feels like. A more biblical way of putting it is this, is that God the Father comes along and sees this little baby vine in Jesus all bearing lovely fruit. And the Father says, hey, we want that to bear some more fruit. Let's cut it back. And anyone ever seen gardening programs where you cut a vine back, you cut it back to the stump. And it's like, ouch. It really is ouch time. Uh, but then what happens is the next season of growth, it comes much bigger than before. That's what it's like. And you see that really in the psalm. And we're going to work through the rhythm of that and help you understand what it feels like to follow the Lord. Okay? It's really important you get this. 
We're not talking about religion here. We're not talking about just kind of signing up to some particular beliefs. We're talking about exercise of the soul. We're talking about knowing the Lord, walking with God, being a friend of God, uh, learning to do things God's way, learning to walk by faith, which means basically you don't know quite where you're going, but you know he does. Okay? It's that whole thing. and It's really important that we understand what that's like. So you up for those two things? Good. Uh, even if you're not, still going to do it. Okay, so uh, let's start with the first two verses of Psalm 130. Desperation is the first stage, if you like, very often. Or we find ourselves in uh, seasons of it. It comes. Listen to this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for Mercy. The man's in the depths. It could be the depths of terrible things have gone wrong, the depths of debt, the depths of heartbreak, the depths of just right, everything's fallen apart around me. I've lost my job, you know, my wife's left, whatever. Just there's there's something of a sense of being in a pit. God! Lord! It's like the walls are climbing up above you and you're right stuck in the bottom. That's what the psalmist is going through here. Everything's gone wrong. Or it's just an internal thing. It's like maybe everyone's looking on thinking, you're fine, you've got a lovely job, you know, you've got a lovely home, things are working out for you, you're popular, and all of that. But inside there's just this sense of, I need God. I need mercy. And you cry to him and you cry out of your depths, out of the very depths of who you are. I want to say this to you tonight. God does not deal in superficialities. He doesn't. He is not interested in superficialities. In fact, God will arrange and rearrange your circumstances to push you out of superficial complacency. He will actually do that because it's an enemy to the soul. We all agree, don't we, that on a, even on a human level, superficial relationships are totally unfulfilling. Are they not? I'm not saying we've got to, every time we meet, got to start crying and say, oh, you know, let's get deep. I'm not saying that, right? It's just intense and downright unhelpful. But I'm saying, I'm saying if there's no sense of reality, if there's no connection, yeah? If there's no sense of I'm really actually getting to know you and letting you know me, then what? Do you know what? After a while, does it get boring? You think, do you know what? I can't be doing this anymore. We've done the weather for like the last ten times we've met. I'm just like, can we just give it a break? Yeah, God, when we say God wants relationship, that's exactly what we're talking about. He wants to connect. Deep calls to deep. That's what he's after. That's what he's after. And he will do whatever needs to be done in order to get that with you. God's aim is that you learn how to pray earnestly. You learn how to cry out, God. You learn how to call on his name. Throughout scripture, there's definitely a strong link between desperation and answered prayer. There's a strong link there. You find it. In Psalm 50, God says, call upon me in the day of trouble. When it all goes wrong, call upon me. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's a lovely rhythm of life, isn't it? It all goes pear-shaped. You go, God! He says, yep. You go, wow. Yeah? Worship. God says, that's all right to do that. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I'll rescue you. When people are around you, against you, and you're up against it, you don't know the way through. Call on me, I will deliver you, and you'll think I'm amazing and you'll worship me. And our relationship will grow. There are many instances in the Bible of mighty kings humbling themselves 
before God because they just they, they know they've, they've done wrong and they that God has spoken through prophets and it's all you know you are on the brink you're on the precipice and they call out and they humble themselves and God in his mercy postpones judgment and says okay you've I've been moved by your humility it's desperation answer prayer God wants us in that place not all the time but he will take you into seasons of that and it is good for the soul it is really good for the soul now notice this, that the regenerated soul, the soul that's been born again, the one that actually knows God, when this desperation comes, it looks up and out. Notice that. There is a call upwards and outwards to a distinct personal saviour called the Lord. That's what the regenerated soul does. It's a sign that you are regenerated, born again, that your instinct is to cry out to him. The new age sends you in. It's a completely different direction. It sends you in to discover what they would call the inherent they would call the inherent divine or the divine consciousness within. Now it's a subtle thing because you see Christians teach that actually humans have been made in the image of God. Yeah? So we've got to work out, well, isn't this the same thing? They're saying, look, just go in and find God within. And surely you're saying you've been made in the image of God, so surely God's within. Isn't it the same thing? No, it's completely different, and here is how. The way the Bible describes being made in the image of God is like this, is that we ought to be in relationship with God. We are all born out of relationship with him, alienated from him. That's why God makes no sense in that sense. We, I have a sense of we know that he's there and that he's real. The Bible says creation makes it clear. But in terms of knowing him, naturally, we, we don't. We might learn to say our prayers or we might, if we're in trouble, say, God, if you're there, help me. But actually, we're in a fog. Our, sense, our spiritual sensibilities are utterly dull and hardened. We're in darkness. We're groping around trying to find out who God is. But then when God in his mercy reveals Jesus to us when we see Jesus we become alive we become made alive in the spirit that our, our, our old heart of stone is taken out a new heart is put in we suddenly know God from that point on we are restored to what we should have been made in the image of God in this sense we are reconciled to him we are in relationship with him we begin to center around him now instead of centering around ourselves or around other created things we center around him we love and worship him and as we do that we are then in a position to express his image in, into creation okay because it comes out of relationship with him. What the New Age is teaching is this, is that no, you don't need any of that stuff. That's all really unnecessary. Within you, as it is, is really God. And it's just that things are out of harmony and out of balance. We're going to look at this later. But as you get it all in balance, you will just connect with God who is self. And uh, then you really will be able to just find the ultimate reconnection that you need. It sends you in instead of sending you out. There's a huge difference there. It's very un- important that you see that. New Age is about reconnection with yourself. Christianity is about reconciliation with God. Very different things. New Age will see you as an autonomous entity. You are who you are within yourself. So within yourself you can find fulfilment and God. Christianity teaches you are a covenantal being. You are not an autonomous entity. You do not exist in and of yourself. You are created for a relationship with God. To have a covenant relationship with him and with others. And outside of that being restored and reconciled, you are reeling out of control. That's what the Bible teaches. Very, very different. I'm, just, I'm really trying to help you understand the differences here. 
New Age sees self as the channel back to fulfilment. Christianity teaches Jesus is the way back to God. Really, the New Age is really just a rehash of Satan's sermon in the Garden of Eden, where Satan said to Eve, do you know what? Why don't you eat this fruit? And she says, well, because God says, you know, we mustn't. And the day we do, we'll die. Satan says, you won't die. God says that because he knows. The day you eat of it, you'll be just like him. Within you, Eve, is the potential to be just like God. It's exactly the same thing. Just rehash the 21st century. I want you to see this stuff today. The psalmist understands there's a lot bigger thing going on here. And he cries out. He cries out for mercy. God. I need mercy. You don't just need a bit of rebalancing through breathing and meditation. It's not like, you know, sometimes you send a car in and it needs rebalancing. It's, it's okay, it's working, but when the engine ticks over the noise, it just needs a little bit of rebalancing. That, yeah, then it'll be fine. Christianity says you're a car wreck. You need the engine coming out and a new one coming in. That is what you need. Mercy. So once you've been through that stage of desperation and you recognize your need for mercy, you see there's this revelation that comes through it. Verse 3 and verse 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, that means moral perversions, the things that we do that are morally perverse. If you were to mark them, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. This idea of standing, who could stand, it's always meant in in reference to judgment. It's about when the day of reckoning comes. If you were to stand before God and he was to have stored up and marked out every morally perverse thought and word and deed and action and brought them before you, how would you do in the judgment? Would you be able to somehow stand before him and give an account or would you be blown away by his judgment? Lord, if you were to mark our transgressions, who could stand. If you were to hold them up and somehow ask for us to find a way through, who could stand? The Bible teaches that one sin, one sin is enough to alienate you from a holy God. And the psalmist has seen it, you see. He's seen it. He understands the reality. He understands himself. And this is one of the things we so need a restoration to understand what we are. Marriages break down because of iniquity. Nations war because of iniquity. You are the way you are because of iniquity. You are under the grip of sin. It's not just that you do a few things wrong and make a few mistakes. There's a power, the Bible calls sin, that dominates and enslaves. And only Jesus, the Bible teaches, brings freedom. We will look at that in just a moment. The heart is the seat of many idols, you know. There's so many other things that we worship other than God. And that's just another manifestation of this thing called sin. And the primary offence of our lives is towards God. The primary offence is towards Him. The New Age is silent on this. It has nothing to say. It has nothing to say because it doesn't believe in this God. It doesn't believe this God is real. It doesn't like the idea, the thought of this moral accountability before God. It's just, no, you just need to get reconnected and... It's just excuse making, it's fig leaves over the nakedness. Instead of actually understanding man, I've thought, said and done things that actually if people knew, I would be ashamed. The things I haven't said and done that I just know I should have, you know. There's just this awareness that the psalmist has here and that God wants to 
to give us. Forgiveness means that sin matters. With you there's forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It's the opposite. It's the, it's, and we have to train, even like, as a family, we have to train our children because sometimes our kids wrong one another and that one says sorry and then one says it's alright. And it's like, no, it's not that it's alright. It wasn't alright. Otherwise, they wouldn't, why would they say sorry? Okay? It's not alright. It's, I forgive you. Because forgiveness means, you know what, that really did matter. That was really offensive. But I want to totally release you. You understand that? That's forgiveness. So that is, it's like if, if, if I come to you and say, I'm sorry. If you to forgive me, not say, ah, damn right, sweep it under the carpet. No, you say, yeah, do you know what, I'm so glad you said sorry. Because when you said that, it really, really went in. But you know, I want you to know I do not hold it against you. I totally release you. Thank you for your apology. That's forgiveness. With God. There is forgiveness. With God, there is forgiveness because of the cross. You've heard us singing about it, praying about it. The Bible teaches that every sin he bore in his body on the tree so that we might know the forgiveness of God. Forgiveness is an incredible gift from God. The New Age has nothing to say, nothing to speak into the problem of sin. It goes utterly silent. Utterly silent doesn't deal with the fact that we stand condemned before God. doesn't deal with the fact there's a judgment coming and we will not be able to stand on our own righteousness. doesn't, doesn't prepare you or deal with that. It rather just gives you a rosy picture that's rooted in unreality. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible, terrible thing. It's interesting, isn't it? It says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That you may be feared. Surely you think, well, God, there's forgiveness, so what the heck? No. When you realise... That you have so offended God. And he has so fully forgiven you. And clothed you in righteousness of his son as a gift. And welcomed you as one of his own. And given you eternal life as a gift. And made you brand new. Do you know what happens? You stand in awe. You say you are amazing. And you want to come and bow the knee. And you delight in humbling yourself before him. And it becomes your delight. Because in the Bible the fear of the Lord is always linked with delight. Always. It's always linked with delight. It's always seen as one of those things which is a beautiful thing. Listen to Psalm 2 verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. That's the Christian life. To rejoice, man, with trembling. Whoa. Yeah? Not just rejoicing, not just trembling, rejoicing with trembling. That is what happens in your heart when you understand you've been forgiven by Almighty God. And he has separated your sins as far from you as the east is from the west. And he chooses to remember them no more and instead he welcomes you as his own. That's glory. That is pure glory. Isaiah 11 verse 3, prophesying about Jesus, says this, His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. The thing that Jesus most delighted in was his reverence before the Father. Was his relationship with the Father. Was this sense of just being under the Father's rule, under the Father's sovereignty, under the Father's gaze. He delighted in the fear of the Lord. That is what God is wanting to produce in our lives. That is what we need. Oh boy, that is what, that is, that, you do not need to realise Self-realization. No, you need to see the glory of God. The wonder of the creator. That is what you need in your soul, deeper than anything else. We're going to look at some of this stuff in just a moment. But to, to understand that the greatest treasure you have is the fear of the Lord in your life. Because of his all-encompassing forgiveness. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then we get on to patient expectation. We've had desperation. 
Humility. God, I've seen myself. I'm a sinner. I need forgiving. <gasps> With you, there's forgiveness. Hallelujah. I'm going to delight in fearing you. And then next comes this patient expectation. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. You see, because there's this assurance of forgiveness. I know because of Jesus, God will forgive me. There's this expectation. Of course God will meet with me. Of course God will come near to me. The thing that kept me from him was my sins. They've been wiped away by the blood of Jesus. Now I can know him. Now we can be friends. Of course God is going to meet with me, encourage me, and fill me with his spirit. I will wait for you, O oh Lord. My soul will wait for you. Do you know what it is to wait? Do you, do you know this? It's for your soul to wait for the Lord. You've got to know this. I speak to you manic Londoners. You need to know what it is to wait for the Lord. You need to know what it is to stop and wait. And I tell you, it'll kill you for the first ten minutes. Am I right? It will kill you. You'll be like... Yeah? All of that. Crazy, manic. Emails, texts, other things with wires and buttons. Writing down lists and, oh yeah, they said, oh I said I'll do that. You think, and then, you know, you three, you, if you get three minutes, you, you know, three minutes of manic on your knees, trying to wait on the Lord, but writing this and sending texts, and you get everything, I'll oh, blow that, I'll just figure it out. It's too easy, eh? I know this. I am Mr. Manic. You know me. You can tell by the way I preach, by my face expressions. It's all manic. It's all crazy. Right? It is. It's all intense. It's all too quick. It's all crazy. I'm having to learn the hard way. God will not walk at my pace. Because he's wise. Yeah? He won't. He will not do it. My soul waits for the Lord. He will not be whipped up into your lifestyle. You need to adjust yours for him. And that's just the way it is. He will, he will not adapt to you. Because he is perfect. So if he adapts to you, he's making a wrong one, isn't he? Yeah? It's not rocket science, is it? You need to constantly let him shape you. So you wait and wait with expectation. And comp- so here's what you often realise, especially if you're charismatic. You're waiting and you're waiting for this like, you're waiting for a 2 Corinthians 12, third heaven, inexpressible utterances, you know, because that's what we're like, right? Charismatics, that's what you're waiting for. Um, I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm just saying don't expect it daily, all right? <laughs> Happened to Paul once, all right? So, but w- here's what you often don't realise. As you are simply waiting on him, and you don't quite know what you're waiting for, but as you slow down, stop, and wait, and wait, and wait, actually, in the waiting, you are being nourished by his spirit. He's doing something. He's doing something. And when you get up, you know it. You're different. You know it. That crazy panic has really gone onto the back burner. And you're trusting him. You're trusting him with your future. You're trusting him with your relationships. You're trusting him with your circumstances. You've, been, you've become still and known that he is God. Amen? It's very, very important. But look at the grounds, the foundation for this expectation in your word, I hope. Has he not promised certain things? Has he not promised us things? Has he not promised he'll provide for us if we put, if we put him first? Yes, yeah. yes, isn't he? 
Isn't it promised if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us? Yeah, he's promised, he's promised that if we hide in him, he'll protect us. He's promised that um, if, we, if we call on him, he will deliver us. He's promised that if we sow, we will reap. He's promised that if we confess, then he'll forgive. That if we believe, we'll get eternal life. So there's a confidence. He cannot lie. He cannot lie. He can't do it. So he said it. And so it brings this amazing confidence. This is true meditation. This is Christian meditation. It's filling your mind with the scripture and it's trusting. It's your soul stretching out to him in confident expectation. Shall we contrast that with yogic meditation? I'm going to read you some stuff now. This is not from um, angrychristians.com. This is from... um, All of the stuff I'm going to read you about yoga is from yogic websites. So it's yoga... Uh, practitioners talking about themselves, okay? Just so you know, just because um, I want you to understand that it's not just kind of, oh, I found the angriest Christian I could who hates everything and I'm quoting him, okay? Not doing that. So here we go. Meditation does not oppose any religious, this is yogic meditation, does not oppose any religious or philosophical beliefs, okay? There's a statement, does not oppose any. Meditation practice makes the individual a better practitioner of their own way of life. Meditation makes a person happier by allowing the practitioners to understand their own thinking and enabling them to make a more tolerant view of all events. Okay? Try to observe your thoughts as a detached observer. This is how to meditate. Um, without passing any judgment. Once you are able to observe your thoughts as a detached observer, ask yourself as to who is doing the thinking and who is doing the observing. Think about it for some time and you'll soon realise that the real you is the observer and is distinct from your mind, which is the observed object. Listen, realising that the real you is neither your body nor your mind is a major step in your spiritual journey. Whoa! Whoa. Stop. Realising that the real you is neither your body nor your mind is a major step in your spiritual journey. You have just opposed Christianity. You've just developed an entirely different anthropology. Doesn't the scripture say, I thank you that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Does it say that? Realising that the real you is neither your body nor your mind is a major step backwards in your spiritual journey. (laughs) It's it's false. It's falsehood. It's just a false idea. Um, then there's an, what's going on? There's an, an, an attempt with yoga to isolate the true self. They really want to make a big deal about the true self. They say what it is, basically, you've got your body and your mind, and they both need to come um, together um, under, really, the rule of the self. And they've got a reason for that. The reason is that because yogic, yogic belief is that the self is divine, is God. Okay? So there's an agenda going on here. There's an agenda, an understanding, a belief system about God going on here that is that he's bringing in this philosophy, but it comes in a way that's like, you know what, we're kind of open to all religions, just come one, come away, it'll help you no matter what you believe. But it's actually presenting a completely different belief system. We'll just go on a little bit more, I'll show you a few other things. Um, So the word yoga, this is really interesting, this is, um, the the word yoga itself means union of the individual consciousness or soul with the universal consciousness or spirit. Though many people think of yoga only as physical exercises, the asanas or postures that have gained widespread popularity in recent decades, these are actually only the most superficial aspect of this profound science of unfolding the infinite potentials of the human mind and soul. We're back in Genesis 3, aren't we? You can be just like God. The infinite potentials of the human mind and soul. Totally without reference to Christ, 
to knowing Jesus and all of that. It should know within yourself there is that there. So, you know, maybe you're somebody saying, well, you know, it's just exercises. Well, no, they've just told us there it's not. That's just the superficial stuff. You want to know about the real stuff. We're going to get into some. That's what they're saying. Okay, that's just superficial. So, um, Kundalini. Who's heard of Kundalini? It's not the escape artist. That was Houdini. Um, who's heard of Kundalini? Anyone? Pardon? Oh, pasta. That's, that's, uh, that's Tagliatelle. Yeah. Well, you're a clever bunch. Uh, Kundalini, um, Kundalini arousal. What the idea with that is, is basically it's kind of one of the big, the big things they're going for in yoga. And it's, it's like the really advanced stuff. And... Um, Basically, the whole idea is that, well, I could just kind of read you some stuff. It's a really long quote. This afternoon, Divinity said to me, your quote was so long. You can't read that again. So I'm kind of, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. Are you with me on this? Do you want to hear about this stuff? Is this interesting? Um, okay, 40% of you. Okay, well. <laughs> you need to know. Look, right, stop. You need to know this stuff. Here's why. Because we are moving away from a, uh, we've moved away from a Christian society and we moved into a materialistic society in around about the 1980s. And then around about the uh, 1990s, we moved away from that, particularly with the whole um, rave scene and, and the LSD drugs and stuff coming back in, into a much more open to spiritual stuff society. We are now total, I would say we are now, especially in the cities, and actually even, even way beyond that now, we are into a very, very spiritual society. Um, a massive openness to really whatever, whatever's kind of on offer. And um, you need to know as a Christian both how to respond to that in your own walk and how to speak to others about these things. It's actually really important. And you'll find if you're at work now, uh, you know, you've got a job or something and you go away for stuff, there'll be, you know, at the hotel you go to, there'll probably be a spa thing and it'll most likely be Buddhist in its presuppositions and workings. Most likely will be. There'll be Buddhas in there and a lot of the treatment will be coming out of, will just be coming out of Buddhist mindset. Okay? You need to know how you're going to respond to that. You go around training days with work, or maybe if you're a student, you go and do a training days or something, and, and as a way of relaxing more and more now, let's, let's do some yoga. You need to know how you're going to respond to that. If you get married and have children, most likely, uh, when your kids do PE, they'll be introduced to yoga. How are you going to respond to that? You need to know this stuff. You really do. Okay? Because it's either, it's either fine, nothing to worry about, or actually it's deeply disturbing, you need to know why, and be able to dis- explain graciously and use it as an opportunity for the gospel. Okay, so please, I'm going to ask you again. Are you interested in this stuff? Yes. Great. Nothing like a bit of uh, manipulation. Right. <laughs> Here we go. I'm going to read you about Kundalini. It's a term from the yogic tradition for the power of the divine. It's Kundalini who creates the universe and knows itself as creator. Kundalini has been called the face of God. Just as we recognize someone by his or her face, we recognize the divine by its power of consciousness. Kundalini... It is Kundalini that clothes the formless in form, that gives the absolute a face to adore, a presence to inspire, traditions to revere, and a body of wisdom to serve and guide. She is the esoteric goal of all yogas, the awakened mind of the Thatagatas and the transcendent vision of saints and sages. By knowing her, all is known, and life becomes suffused with ananda, sublime joy. The source of that joy is our very own self, forever present. Nearer than our breath, waiting in stillness to be revealed. Drown the ordinary ego mind in stillness if you truly want to know the knower. So Kundalini is referred to as a she and as the attributes of Christ ascribed to her. Okay? 
Yeah, you clear on that? We're going to go a bit more, a bit deeper now. The Eastern traditions reserve, con- re- revere Kundalini as a goddess, the great mother who gives birth to all that is. She is seen as taking on limitations, contracting and condensing to form the material world. She is the essential energy, more fundamental than nuclear power, that is the basis of who we are and all that we experience. When our limited mind is infused with her transcendent power of consciousness, we know directly the truth of our unity with the divine and all its creation. Every spiritual tradition has its name for Kundalini, Holy Spirit, Grace, Shekinah, Anima, Chi, Bodhikitta, and every saint and mystic has known her blessing. Seekers on all paths need her grace to succeed on their journeys. For this reason, shamans, yogis, monks, priests, nuns, and aspirants of all types approach her as suppliants. Being the great mother, the great lover, she's willing to take whatever shape and bear whatever name her children wish to use as they bow to her. I'll go on. Kundalini is often used to refer to the power of the divine present in each person. She has two aspects. One maintains the entire existence of our body, mind and spirit. The other aspect, considered dormant, is the power of consciousness to know the divine in its infinitude as self. This potential power, innate to all of us, can propel our awareness from the paltry limitations of individual existence with all its wants and needs and deficiencies to unity consciousness. The sublime awareness of our divine self, infinite and all-encompassing, symbolized by a coiled serpent asleep in the center of earthbound consciousness, that's around the base of your spine. This aspect of Kundalini awaits the great awakening, the most profoundly important event in the long life of the soul, a life that extends over countless cycles of physical birth and death. Now, what I'm saying is this. When you get deep into yoga, what they're going to try and do is get you to this place where you can experience kundalini arousal. And the idea is that from the base of your spine, you will feel a sudden surge of energy, and then you'll feel something perhaps like a serpent snaking up your back and to the top of your head. And then from that point on, you, you, any, all kinds of things could happen in your life, either from um, find yourself just uh, overcome by uh, sexual kind of titillation, um, amazing abilities you didn't have before, this, that, and the other. You've basically become demonized. It's gross. I felt nauseous as I read it last night. Okay, this, I'm not being alarmist here. This is, this is them talking about really, this is, what, this is where this thing is going. Let me just highlight a few things, just critique a few things here. This teaching obviously does three things. Number one, it promotes pluralism. Okay? It, the belief that every religion is really the same, every religious expression is really worshipping the same thing, and that it's ultimately unimportant who you worship as long as you worship. This cuts to the heart of a living faith in the historical person of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way to be reconciled to the Father. It's also why yoga says it's not religious and can be practiced by people of all religions. At its heart, it neither understands nor appreciates the differences between all religions and Christianity. It doesn't get Jesus. Blind and darkened. So it doesn't get it. Secondly, it's promoting the idea that our true inner self is God, which the Bible flatly denies. Finally, it promotes the idea of reincarnation, whereas the Bible is clear that man is ordained to live once and then face judgment. It's utterly anti-Christian. True meditation is so different from this. And I want to end with this last two verses, which just bring back some light and some purity and some fresh air into this sermon. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. Ah, someone's opened the windows. With him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his 
iniquities. This is the crowning glory of the psalm. The steadfast love of the Lord. The highest of heights is not to be found in some bizarre experience, some mystical weird experience in and of yourself. The highest of heights is seen in the father giving up his one and only son. His father giving up that which was his most prized dear darling to die on a cross. That's the height of heights. To see this son, Jesus, eternal, co-eternal with the father, willing to become a man, live a life here for us willingly go through hardship go through the cross go through every temptation take in his body all of our iniquities and then die and then rise from the dead beating death and beating sin taking us with him that's that's what we're talking about that's the steadfast love of the lord it's concrete it's sacrificial it's human it's gutsy it's real it's beautiful it's beautiful And it leaves this other stuff standing. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So that whoever puts their trust in him will not perish. But will have everlasting life. With him is plentiful redemption. Redemption means something's being brought back from the brink. It looks hopeless. It's, where's it gone? Uh, is there any hope there? God comes in and brings it right back. He loves to redeem. The Bible says, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. You might be here thinking, man, do you, know, you don't know what I've done. What can Jesus do for me? Where sin abounds, if you're abound, if you're lost in darkness, grace abounds more. And I don't know how it works in the wisdom of God, but it seems like the more you get forgiven of, the more you love him. Okay, so his gospel, his arm is not too short to save. He can reach right in and pull you out of that darkness and bring you true hope and eternal life. Even tonight. Even tonight. Because it's all been done by Jesus Christ. Brought out of iniquity, debt cancelled, conscience cleansed, heart replaced, new life given. Surely, surely I would say this, end with this. The greatest tragedy of the new age is that the God who is love, the restorer, the redeemer, the consuming fire, the passionate lover of our souls is reduced and replaced by me. <sighs> Horrific. But we will do anything in our sinfulness to escape him. Even believe stuff like this. Let me say to you, God wants to redeem you out from the grip of sin. Those of you, 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 you're here tonight, you're not believers or you're not sure. He wants, to, he wants to pull you out of the grip of sin. He wants to shine the light of Jesus into your heart. He wants to make you brand new. He calls you to repent tonight. He calls you to change the way you think about him, about yourself, about everything. He calls you to come and bow the knee. He wants you entirely. Absolutely entirely. He wants to win you, save you, set you on a rock and set you off in your new destiny in him. The Bible says that God is calling all people everywhere to repent. It's an open invitation to get right with God tonight. So we take the bread and wine in just a moment. You come and take that bread and wine. You put your faith in Christ. You give him your all. And we'll stand with you. Help you learn to walk as a Christian.
enjoy this new life that's in him. And those of you that are believers, but you know you're in a season of desperation. It's normal. Just cry out to him. Just cry out. He'll answer you. He'll help you. Don't fear it. You've got nothing to fear. If you're following the Lord, you have nothing to fear. He's the good shepherd. Amen? He's the good shepherd. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He knows every hair on your head. Every one of them is numbered. (coughs) He will not let you come to harm. He will not let you come to anything that's outside of his plan for you. Okay? Let's just be still for God for a moment. Maybe we should just... uh, just, just, just sit still. Just, let's just be before. Let's just maybe just wait for just a moment. Hey, I was talking about earlier, waiting for the Lord. Let's just wait for a moment, shall we? Don't worry about what time it is, and don't worry about this or that, or you know. Let's just be before God. And 